Welcome to the original Pirate Material podcast, based on the incredible true life story of Captain Tons. My name's Darren, and in each episode, James and I will be chatting to Tons about his extraordinary exploits and sharing his unique insights about life at sea. Before we find out exactly how you escaped, some of those details we were speaking about in the last episode. The more I think about them, the more I have even more questions. And I think to start with, as someone who's never had to get off a ship and swim across water where there's guards looking out for me, can you just tell us a little bit more about that, the process that you went through, the thought pattern, and actually the fact that that wasn't just as simple as a nice little swim in a very clean swimming pool? Well, no, but the, the, the first swim, the first swim was a, a, a recce swim. We didn't really know anything what we were, you know, we just, let's go and have a look. And uh, that was the hardest because the water, it had a, a film of oil on top and there was all kinds of waste and bits of this and bits of that, you can imagine, floating on the water. And, and at night, in the dark, these little tiny things become much bigger and, and more horrible. So being covered in all this dirt, climbing up the ladder, uh, was foremost in my mind, not the problems of uh, what we were going to encounter, but feeling so filthy. How far away were the guards from you when you would have been swimming? The dock was 60 metres, and then there was oh, another 10 metres to the other side of the tanks, maybe dozen. So 15 metres. It's difficult to describe because all you're thinking about at the time is, you know, to keep quiet and, oh, my God, look at all this I'm sitting in. You name it, it was floating there. It's called the North Mole of Gibraltar, and it's the North Corner. So when the tide is in a certain way, all, all the that's in the harbour actually goes into that corner. So you've got uh, effluent, you've got dirt, you've got plastic, you've got anything you can imagine is in there. But the worst thing is the oil, because it gets on you, you see, and it makes you feel more filthy. But then when you climbed out, you've done the swim... And you climbed out, as we spoke about last week, and before you started going through the fence, you said that the oil actually then worked quite well in your favour, the fact you were covered in that. Well, yes, of course, uh, because we were like, you know, black, and then it's night time. And uh, we were extremely lucky because the fence was partly broken. There were two or three bits of the fence missing, you know, not connected. So it, it was really going to be easy for us to cut the rest and get through, which we did. And from there to the, um, the fence was about a metre in from the corner. So the centre of the tank would have been about six or seven metres from the edge of the dock. Then there's another six or seven metres to the other side of the tank and a little road where, where pathway where the, the guards were walking up and down. So uh, we were really close to them, yeah. Then you were taking the fuel, you're kind of pumping it out through the hose. And you said it was just like a standard garden hose. You said you picked it up from somewhere. Can you talk us through how you came to be in possession of that hose? Well, after we'd done the reconnoiter and after we've opened the, the valve on the bottom of the tank that, that lets the water out and, and we've found that this tank contains fuel oil, we closed it. Then we went back and made our plan for the following night. And that included going to the 
corner of the harbour where the yachts are. And there they had these long hoses for filling up their, their boats with water. So um, uh, we needed a, a 70 or 80 metre hose pipe, that's a long hose pipe. How did you get a 70 or 80 metre hose past the guards back to the ship for you to then use it? Well, after the uh, reconnoitre, the day after, we went walking around. Uh, you're allowed to walk around. We went walking around the marina and everywhere looking for a long hose. And that's where we found it. We found it, it hanging up in the marina. So we made a, a plan that night. But I have to add that when we put the hose pipe back, we cleaned it so that no one would know that it had been used for fuel oil. You know, we, we spent about 20 minutes cleaning it inside and out. So forgive me, because I've never tried to steal oil uh, before. So you swum through this filthy water. You've got your 70, 80 meter hose. You're somehow yeah. managing to siphon the oil into tanks, I'm assuming. How do you get the tanks back to your vessel? The hose pipe was, we connected the hose pipe to the tank, the fuel tank. It then went down into the dock, across the water, onto our ship. That's why we needed, it was 60 metres from one side of the dock to the other. It, I measured, I didn't know, but I measured it on Google, it's 60 metres. And uh, so the hose pipe had to be longer than that, so it could go onto our ship from the tanks we were stealing the fuel from. Uh, the hose pipe is about um, 80, I should imagine, 80 metres long. So you can imagine, this is heavy. And we've got to float it, although it floats nicely on the water, we've got to float it and take it across. Then we've got to pull it up the dock and drag it to the bottom of the Royal Naval fuel tanks. So it took both of us to do this. Then my partner in crime went back down the ladder, swam back across to the boat with the other end of the hose pipe, started filling up all our tanks and drums while I stayed there underneath the tank holding the hose pipe onto the tap because they weren't the same size so I had to hold it there physically and to fill up all the tanks took us something like nearly two hours. So now we're at the point where you've got the fuel, you know you're back, you've cleaned everything, you've <laughs> hidden the evidence. Talk us through what then happened the next day. Well, uh, I have to admit that um, we were so happy having the fuel that we, uh, we thought about going then and there, you know, just going. But it would have been going blind. We wouldn't know what we were up against. So uh, I thought the best thing to do was this get clean, have a good sleep. And then I made the program for the following day at half past five, because at seven o'clock, the, um, uh, the sun goes down in Gibraltar in November, it becomes dark. Uh, around six o'clock, the port captain goes home. So I wanted to look my adversary in the eye and know exactly what's happened because we, we have to use our advantages. We had several. The first, the ship was full of fuel and the harbour master, the port captain, thought we were nearly empty. Second, for three days prior to this event, we had hacksaws, we bought hacksaws, and so nobody could see, we wrapped cloth around one end of the hacksaws, and we slowly cut through the chains. 
until just the tiniest little bit of steel was keeping the chain together. We covered this in grease and dirt so no one could see we'd cut the chains, but that was a second advantage. Oh, all day we were like um, just sitting around doing nothing, looking bored. So at um, about five minutes to five that evening, I nonchalantly walked all the way down to the port captain's office, looking as bedraggled and as sorry as I could. And I walked in there and, and for the first time I said, sir, I said, Captain, sir, I uh, would like permission to start my engines because we need to use the bilge pump and our batteries are low. And immediately, of course, I knew he would. He said, no, no, not allowed. So I went down on one knee and I begged with tears in my eyes, saying we can't read our little books at night in our cabin because the light is so dim. And what are we going to do about the bilge pump? And finally, him looking at this groveling thing, his adversary, me, groveling around, he gave me 45 minutes. I'm allowing you 45 minutes, he said, to use the engines to charge the batteries. Okay, so thank you, sir, so much. Tears in my eyes. So I then slowly, very slowly, walked back to the ship. And there I gave the thumbs up to who slowly, slowly went to the engine and started it. Now, our engine was a Leyland track engine, and it needs 25 minutes to get up to the right temperature for what we want to do. And so for 25 minutes, we let it run ticking over while we were sitting looking at a newspaper or talking about the ship. Knowing that all eyes are on us, or captains looking at us, the harbour masters, they're all looking at us. So every little movement we made had to be you know, uh, Oscar winning actor. Then at 5.30 approximately, 25 minutes later, when our engine was ready, I left on the, the bow and I went aft again, slowly, slowly. And we picked up two big hammers that we had ready. And at my signal, we both hit the chains at the same time and the last little bit fell off and the chains fell away. Now we went into another mood, which is rush mood. I rushed into the wheelhouse, rushed into the engine room and we were full steam uh, in reverse. That's a stern, but in reverse. It took us a couple of minutes to get up to speed because, you know, from a standing start, by which time the radio is now going completely bananas. There's uh, the port captains on the radio ordering, Burn Beach, Burn Beach, you will return to the dock. This is an order. And uh, I think I allowed him to say that twice. And then I thought the best thing to do now is to shut down all the radio communications. So I put a cassette in, the um, cassette player next to the mic, and I played Rod Stewart's Maggie Maggie May, blocking all the Channel 16 radio communications. The guy then uh, went quite literally screaming on, on, the, on the radio so everyone could hear, telling everybody to go to Channel 14. Well, of course, I'm also everybody. So I too went to Channel 14. 
and blasted Maggie Maggie Mayer on Channel 14. They went, they went to Channel 11, and uh, I did the same thing. And then, of course, poor Captain uh, came running down the mole towards us because we we're just about to, to turn. And he said, with a megaphone, the same thing. You will return to the dock. So I realized now that everyone has given up on the radio, but the last message I heard was he had ordered the pilot boat to come in and, and block us and, if possible, arrest us. And he'd also sent the same message to Her Majesty's Royal Navy ship, which was, I think, a minesweeper. Why did you choose Maggie May to be blasting out at this particular moment in time? Every time we sail, Darren, we play uh, sailing, Rod Stewart sailing. It's, it makes us feel good. And uh, we'd always played it. But I put the cassette in the wrong way around. <laughs> and just by pure, <laughs> pure chance, it was Maggie May. The uh, pilot boat had received the order from the captain of the port and and came quickly and positioned himself right at the entrance of the of the harbour. It would have been difficult to got out without uh, a collision. So uh, what I did was uh, I got the megaphone as well. You know, we're all on megaphones now. And the captain of the pilot boat was megaphoning me, stop, stop, you're ordered to stop. The captain of the port was on the end of the quay, jumping up and down and screaming, stop, stop, you're ordered to stop. And I got on the megaphone and I said, uh, pilot boat, pilot boat, I'm not stopping. And if I hit you, you're the one who's going to sink, not me. And I got a lot of abuse from uh, both megaphones. And I was full speed and I was picking up speed all the time. And the captain of the pilot boat, when I say boat, it's more like a ship. It's, it's enormous. It's the main Gibraltar pilot and, and they look for ships coming in going out and they've got pilots to take ships to Malta or Greece or wherever in the Mediterranean it's a really big boat. Why were they going to sink tones over your ship? First of all they were made of wood it's, a, it's the, they're generally always made of woods pilot boats and secondly I was going to hit him with my with my bow right midships and it, it, the weakest point of, of his ship I, I was a little worried because uh, for a, a minute or so, I didn't think he was going to move. And so I was going to have to make a decision. Am I going to ram him or not? Because then, you know, you're, you're really getting into big trouble. So uh, I was a little worried there for about 45 seconds. But then he chickened out and he moved. And he had no choice but to move past the entrance of the harbour, giving me space then to get out and get towards the sea. But I have a problem, and my problem is the pilot boat, which is now turning round. And I know that he's big, he's speed, he's powerful, and I'm only a barge. So it's only a question of three, four, maximum five minutes. And he's gonna be alongside giving me a problem. But then a most amazing thing happened. The port captain ordered the pilot boat to go into harbour to pick him up. We're talking seconds and minutes when you're escaping. 
And this was now minutes to several minutes that it would take the pilot boat to go in, pick him up, turn around and come back out again. And I calculated that I've got between six to eight minutes, in which time I'm full speed. So it was like the hare and the turtle, you know, you're, it, it's catching you, but you're, you're not quiet all the time. And then a second stroke of luck was there was an altercation which ended up with the captain of the port being thrown off the pilot boat. The pilot boat came out. I saw it come out and I thought, right, I'm now calculating how long it's going to take him to catch me. And then he turned left to take a pilot off a ship. To back, he went back to doing his actual job. He wasn't interested at all in what was happening to me. So that was a stroke of luck. So you're out past one ship, you're out the port, but you mentioned before about the Royal Navy ship that was outside. Did you come up against that? Well, um, as we speak, 24 hours a day, there's a Royal Naval Patrol vessel in the Gibraltar Straits. And, and depending on the Royal Navy's wants and needs, it could be any kind of vessel. It could be a, a frigate, it could be a minesweeper, it could be, as long as it's a vessel going up and down, they're happy. This particular day, it was a big vessel, I think. It was a frigate. And the frigate had been listening to everything that's going on. And he'd been in touch with the port captain, and the port captains asked him to stop us. But unfortunately for him, the captain of the frigate is now pointing out of, of the Mediterranean towards the Atlantic. I know the goings of the, of the Royal Navy and what, what happens when you give an order. And it takes something like 35 seconds before they can get an order out to turn the ship around. At which point the navigator comes in, radar comes in, and all the other guys comes in. Because when they turn the ship, they have to turn it in such a way that it doesn't interfere with other shipping. And we're in a very heavily laden shipping lane. P ships coming in the Mediterranean, ships going out. Plus, of course, ferries and other stuff. So it will take him at the very minimum a minute and 15 seconds to turn. Plus, of course, the time it takes for his decision to turn. So you've got a couple of minutes. And you know when he started to turn because a puff of smoke will come out of the smokestack on the ship. So you know by looking at him, you see the puff of smoke. You know he's now manoeuvring. And so you calculate how long it's going to take a turn. The turn is about 45, 47, 50 seconds maximum. And then when he's done the turn, he's going to have to calculate an interception course between him and me. So as he started the turn, I changed my course towards Tangiers. And so everyone thought I was going to Suta, which is the port just across the world from Gibraltar but I managed to go on a course to Tangiers. When I'd convinced the frigate that I was going to Tangiers, they made a course of interception, at which point I turned round and went towards Ceuta. But I didn't go into Ceuta. I went right up to the coast, the Moroccan coast, along the Moroccan coast, and went into Melilla, Morocco, and hid there. 
when I got to Manila, I pulled in behind a port line ship. And in those days, the port line ships from London were the orange ships. They took all the oranges from Morocco in Manila to London. And when I pulled up behind this ship, a lot of the crew got off because they've all been listening to the whole thing on the radio. They knew exactly what was going on, you know, there were it's mariners. So they ran down and they were like happy. There was a congratulations, well done, you know. And well, within an hour or so, they brought us about 15, I don't know, big cases of oranges that we put in the holes. So how long did you stay there? A day and a half. It was a pretty good day and a half. We had to wait till the waters calmed down. We didn't know what was going on, what the authorities were going to be doing. We didn't go into Suta, which is Spanish, and they have agreements with Gibraltar, so maybe we'd have a problem in there. So we, we chose Melilla as the first possible port, and we stayed there until everything was cool. Well, where did you head to next? Then we headed along the coast of Algeria. Our destination was Malta. We started to hit some, some uncomfortable weather. I wouldn't say bad weather, but it was uncomfortable and boring. So I decided to pull into a very small Algerian port called Churchill. And I pulled in there and it was an old Roman town with Roman ruins, which I'm quite interested in. And we left the ship to have a look at the Roman ruins. And when we came back, we found it had been ransacked. Who would have done that to a pirate ship? Well, uh, the local people, we knew the situation they were in at the time because we went to the shops to get bread and stuff. And um, there was no bread. There was no meat. There was some vegetables and eggs, lots of eggs. The people there probably, not, I'm not going to say starving, but going that way. So did you have some sympathy for the people that ransacked your barge? In a way, a, a, a sweet and sour sympathy and anger. But uh, we knew, well, there's nothing you can do about it. It's done. So, you know, let's just wait and go as soon as the weather gives us a break. So you're now setting sail again. You don't have your full supplies, obviously, because they've just been ransacked. Based on what you had left on the barge, how long would you have had before you needed to stock up again? It wasn't everything gone, but most, all the food was gone. And oh, it didn't really matter to us. We could have got all the way to Malta, but we pulled into the main Algerian port. And there again, we almost got ransacked another time. And again, although this was a big town, there was nothing to buy there. The, the only thing we could do was push on to Malta, which we did. Of course, when we got to Malta, I was outside uh, Valletta Harbour and I radioed the port captain and I told him who I was and that we would like to come in because we had stores waiting for us. We had an agent there who was going to, you know, we would fill up with everything we needed. And I was quite surprised because the port captain replied on the radio, just come in, just come in. You don't need a pilot, just come in. And we did very slowly, not knowing what kind of reception we would receive. But when we got to the, to the dock, 
the reception was wonderful. They, they'd all heard about what happened. And at that particular point, Malta was quite anti-British. Anyone who's done anything against the British Navy was looked upon as kind of hero. So uh, we were looked after quite well in Malta. And then from Malta, where did you head off to then? Well, here starts a little tiny enigma because um, uh, two days later, I, um, I actually used the phone. I went to a phone box and I called the uh, Royal Air Force Station, Malta, and told them who I was and asked them for a weather report, gave them my destination. And their reply to me was absolutely fine. Zero problems, bon voyage. So great. If you can't trust the RAF, who can you trust? <laughs> so off we went. And it took about eight hours when suddenly, out of nowhere, we were in the middle of an extremely dangerous hurricane. You've been listening to original pirate material produced by Dare Pictures and Picaroons. If you like this podcast, please do go leave us a review, share with a friend, or get in contact with us at piratematerial.co.uk. Here's a taste of what's to come. Well, I said, uh, so, so, Captain, you, you feel that it's going to get worse, the weather. And he started laughing over the radio. And he said, it can't get any worse, he said. This is a hurricane. It's a cyclone.